Welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. I'm Derek Van Gorder. Today we have Bethany Burem here with us to discuss Oren Cass's working hypothesis. In 2018, Cass wrote a book called The Once and Future Worker, in which he argues for creating labor market conditions that give everyone the opportunity to contribute to society as productive workers. This position is based on an assumption that he calls the working hypothesis. This is the working hypothesis. A labor market in which workers can support strong families and communities is the central determinant of long-term prosperity and should be the central focus of public policy. We read an Oren Cass article from the American Interest for tonight entitled The Working Hypothesis. It's adapted from his book, and throughout both the book and the article, he frequently says things like, if the working hypothesis is correct, then we ought to do X. But is the working hypothesis correct? We'll be getting into that tonight. One thing I really like about Cass's perspective is that he recognizes the power of markets and talks about creating conditions that allow markets to support our desired social outcomes. The question is, what social outcomes does it make sense for us to desire? And is giving everyone an opportunity to contribute to society through paid work one of them? And why? I also like his emphasis on the fact that economic growth alone isn't going to improve social outcomes optimally or lead to maximum prosperity. Furthermore, he rightly calls out the strategy of trying to push everyone through college so they can get a high-paying, high-status job as futile. But is vocational training really the answer? That's kind of what he suggests. There are a lot of questions here. With that, I'll turn it over to Bethany. Thanks for having me on, Alex. I really appreciate it. Just to start out, my knowledge of Oren's work is mostly limited to this article that we had for today, which is taken from his book. But with that, I'm going to give a few thoughts on things that I had issues with in the article, and then a few things that I think are kind of fruitful. So one summary of what I took about Oren's thoughts from this article is that he thinks that working for the money that we get, instead of just getting it, for example, as a basic income, which he explicitly talks about, is really important. To him in this article, at least, it's so important that it's worth sacrificing the environment to a certain degree so that we have less clean air, we get sick more. It's worth sacrificing people's time, of course, in the sense that they're spending their time on the work. And it's worth reducing access to cheap foreign labor and efficient tree trade in order to make work for people that they otherwise wouldn't need to do. All of these things are justified because it's really important that people work for the money that they get. This is all sort of what I'm taking from the article. I have several concerns about this. So I think he misses a few things in his analysis. One thing that I think that he misses is that much of his analysis of social ills seems to confound lack of money with lack of paid employment. At least in this article, and we can get to quotes later on, he talks about various problems that people are having, but a lot of these things stem from lack of money. So that's kind of one thing where it's not always clear that those things would persist if you had income from another source. He also has, though, this intuition that you need to be feeling like you're contributing to have well-being, that it's not enough to have money. But I think this intuition confounds contribution with paid employment. It's not clear that he, he hasn't done any work, at least in this article, to indicate that people's well-being requires paid employment rather than just contributing. And I think this is particularly problematic because he actually advocates work that really isn't contributing indirectly because you're using these economic policies like reducing reliance on cheap foreign labor or reducing free trade or even subsidizing people's wages to encourage people to do work that isn't necessarily actually having a contribution. So there his argument has to be that like somehow the illusion of contributing through paid employment is essential to well-being. And I don't think 
he's done enough for me to, 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 argue, to argue or demonstrate that. Even if there is an important need to contribute, I suspect that other kinds of contributions that aren't paid employment, but are real, probably trump contributions that are fake through paid employment. So that's another concern that I have with his perspective. He also seems to miss something that is less surprising to me that he misses, which is that the values people currently have and the things that they currently need for their well-being are somewhat endogenous, meaning they come out of the conditions that we currently have. And this is something we talked a lot about in another meetup on cultural incentives, but it's relevant here as well, because if people right now do require some kind of paid employment to have some sort of self-esteem or to attract a marriage partner and other things that he talks about in the article, it doesn't mean that they would in a different kind of situation where they had, for example, a basic income. Because right now, paid employment is, for many people, the only means to secure material survival, let alone any other perks above material survival. So of course, we're going to internalize the idea that it's really important to have a job. And of course, our self-esteem is going to depend on it. And of course, finding a marriage partner is going to depend on it, because otherwise, they're marrying someone without necessarily any economic security, right? So all of these things follow from the conditions we have now. And it's a mistake to assume that even those values and those things from which we get self-esteem and so on are going to persist in the same way in a different economic structure where a job isn't so essential. So I think that's something really critical that Oren misses. And I'm happy to talk more about that. Before we move on, I just wanted to acknowledge something that I think is insightful about his approach. And Alex mentioned several things that I also agree with, but I wanted to highlight that he has this idea of the short-term versus the long-term, which I think is useful. So he talks about how, you know, we might have certain kinds of economic policies that say improve our productive capacity in the short term, but decrease it in the long term, because people adjust in certain ways, like perhaps they stop getting an education, and then they we don't have as much human capital in the long term, there are these various feedback loops that he likes to highlight. And I don't necessarily agree with all of the feedback loops that he highlights. But I do think it's an interesting thing for us to think about and might apply to a world with a basic income as well. Uh, so it might be interesting to think about what kinds of impact policy will have, uh, something like a basic income will have on longer term production and productive capacity. For example, maybe people would need to be paid more to work over time as the effect I mentioned before happens, as they lose this sort of internalized desire to have a job and this sense that a work is really important, you might actually have to pay them more actual cash <laughs> to do that work. That could be one possible change that would happen as people adapt to a basic income over time. There might be many others, but I do think that recognition of sort of long-term effects and these feedback loops could be interesting to explore. And I think that's something insightful that Orrin has in his article. So I'm happy to talk about that today a little bit too. Thanks. That's all very interesting. You've talked a lot about in the past about endogenous versus exogenous source of values mm -hmm. and how the valuing work may be internalized today because of the conditions that exist. Yeah. But, you know, in his article, he's, he's sort of also, it's funny because in a way he almost makes us explicit. He says, well, if your perspective, if our values <laughs> are that um, benefiting consumers is what matters, then all of this becomes much simpler and we just don't have to worry about anything. But because <laughs> my value is work, you know, we have to go through all these, jump through all these hoops. So I guess, what's your take on this article? Where does he make it most explicit, kind of like where this comes from? Because I would imagine talking to him, if you try to say, well, it's okay because the conditions will change our values, right? Mm -hmm. They, Someone like this author might, might worry about that and say, well, yes, and that's why we have to work so hard to prevent that because we don't want people to just think of themselves as consumers, right? Mm. So like, where, where do you, where, what is the crux of his <laughs> argument as far as why we should value work in your view? It's a great question. And I, I or in Cass, if you're listening, please come on and debate us because we would love to actually let you defend yourself uh, on here. But one of the issues I had, at least with this article, and maybe Alex can speak to the book, is that it wasn't so clear where this came from. It did almost seem like a tautology at times, like you're almost alluding to with your question that even if I said this might change, he would want you to prevent it from changing. But then he's also kind of using it as the foundation for his other arguments. He talks in 
vague terms a lot, like talking about having strong communities, strong families, strong, you know, that people want to produce, that they want to contribute. He just kind of asserts these things for the most part. And so it's kind of difficult to have a sense of where he thinks it's coming from. It just seems like he's positing it as, well, I guess two things, kind of positing it as a given, but also he looks to data that, as I mentioned before, is somewhat confounded, right? So he'll look to data about how, like, when you have unemployment, you don't have as many marriages or something like that. And so then he would use this to argue that you need uh, to work in order to have, you know, stable families. But of course, like, that's highly confounded with work being a stable source of income. And he doesn't, at least in this article, really address that. So I guess he has kind of like flawed, in my opinion, flawed empirical findings, and then just kind of like an assertion. Alex, does he go into this more in the book, why this is needed for people? He does a little bit. And in the article too, I think one of the main things he brings up is that if people aren't productive on their own, if workers in a particular economy aren't self-sufficient or aren't able to contribute to that economy, then we become more dependent on imports, mm. um, less kind of self-sovereign, that kind of thing. So there's certainly an issue there. And that can be true when it comes to industrial policy as well. And at an individual level, you know, to some extent, people want people to be self-sufficient. But at the level of the country, certainly you actually mm -hmm. need some of that redundancy as well. You don't want to depend entirely on China for all of your imports, that kind of thing. So if everybody becomes dependent on the government, just giving them money for through basic income, for example, and everybody in your country is just just buying stuff and nobody knows how to make anything, then maybe you put yourself in a vulnerable position. Yeah, that's a good point. And you remind me, Alex, of another answer uh, to your question, Derek, which is I think he alludes, at least in the article, to some of these feedback loops I was talking about. Like he's concerned that if people don't value productivity and working and so on, then like they kind of lose, like Alex said, the, the ability to be productive and they lose skills that maybe we actually need. So maybe you sort of like overshoot in the long run and there's like a downward spiral of productivity. But I think he also doesn't it's a little bit confusing to me whether he takes seriously the idea that paid work could be unproductive, even though at the same time he's proposing these policies that essentially make it unproductive. It kind of seems like at the same time he assumes that it's useful by definition in a way. So so I'm not sure if, if that's part of the issue. Well, if I remember correctly, very interestingly, he does sort of imply, suggest that there is a kind of natural efficiency to markets and the markets are going to do he says sort of a combination of what consumers demand and then also something about what mm -hmm. economics sort of demands. And he's actually suggesting it's probably worth reducing some of that in order to achieve this mm -hmm. other goal, which is yeah. work contribution. <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting. I thought this, I found this article very interesting because he makes explicit a lot of things that we will usually explicitly critique <laughs> yeah. um, and other and other proponents of other variants of the working hypothesis. But here he's sort of very clear about it. He's very, very much saying that there is something fundamentally valuable about work. He does seem to take it as a given in the way I, you sometimes see in philosophical or moral debates where it's like, look, we're just obviously we're going to start with we can all agree this is a good thing. It's very interesting in that sense. Yeah, I agree. And there, I, I went through this article making a lot of like detailed notes I won't bore everybody with, but there were many points at which I felt that some of these confounds were happening insofar as he did try to back this up, where again, like he would talk about being on government assistance, for example, as sort of an obvious negative. If you backed it up, he'd back it up as kind of suggesting it wasn't enough money, for example, to like pay for your family. But then he would also argue at other times that we should cut it or like it's too high. Uh, and so like these things didn't quite add up for me logically, because if it's a money issue, you can obviously pay people more. But as you say, he clearly believes there's something important about work kind of above and beyond anything else. Uh, and yet I can't quite pin my 
I can't quite figure out why. Yeah, he kind of views a pro-worker, get everyone access or opportunity to be productive contributors, jobs, that kind of thing, as kind of win-win. It's good for <laughs> maintaining our productive capacity because everybody's able to do stuff that might contribute. So even if you're maybe doing something that's a little bit redundant with what could be imported or someone else could do or something like that, you're maintaining that capacity. So that's good. But he views it as win-win because he also views it as good for the worker because of the psychology. Mm -hmm. So I think that part of it certainly you would object to. Maybe here we would say, okay, maybe, there, maybe there's a reasonable argument to be made that we need some redundancy. We need to maintain some capacity, but we would push back against the psychology part of that because we would say that that is just a kind of approximate effect that ultimately serves the incentive to contribute labor. Yeah. I think that to try to give him a charitable kind of backstory, and maybe this is his backstory, um, he might argue that people, you know, just evolved to want to get, like to, to be rewarded by signals that they're contributing to their community or, so, or something like that, which might be possible. That that could be something that's fairly sticky to, in, in a sort of basic sense, like hard, hard to adapt. But what I would say back to that is like, even if that basic sort of sense of getting signals back that you're contributing is somewhat difficult to change or is sort of just there as a part of our psychology, the, clearly you can look across situations uh, and see that the specific things that you need to do to get that feedback or like the specifics are, are quite malleable. And so paid employment is not definitely not the only way to have a sense that you're you know being valued by your community or contributing in some way. And that I've never seen him bring up. Right. I've never seen him like distinguish between contributing and paid employment. And as I pointed out in my intro, in fact, he seems to be suggesting we waste people's time on things that aren't really contributions, arguably at least, instead of letting them like do something that really is a contribution. He would never like put it that way. But if you take paid employment out of it and look at some of the policies that he's recommending or like the wage subsidies that he's recommending to kind of get companies to employ people, um, it does look like he thinks that like paid labor is so important or like that's somehow the only way that we can get this sense of contribution. So we have to kind of like finagle that even if it's not really a contribution totally anymore. Um, yeah, and I, I suspect, I mean, Orrin Cash should come on and, and defend himself as I said before, but I suspect that like, it's just so ingrained for so many people that paid employment is important because we just look around and like that is the way that people get their money and have security and get prestige that it's sort of like hard to get out of that mindset and Orrin Cass is kind of like stuck in that mindset. I, I, I could be wrong, but that's my guess. Well, we, we can't get Orrin on tonight, but what, right, we can do, <laughs> what we can do is uh, is maybe go through some of the, the article and actually look at it, at it in his own words, because we might not be doing the best job summarizing here. So quickly, uh, Austin has a question in the chat, which is, does Orrin Cass suggest a job guarantee? And the answer is no, that um, part of his, he has a few different proposals, but one of the big ones that would probably stand in place of the job guarantee is that he wants to pay businesses a wage subsidy. So this makes it cheaper for businesses to hire workers. You only have to pay, you know, $9 an hour for your workers, but your workers receive $12 an hour. So it's almost like an inverted payroll tax for wages at the lower end of the spectrum, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting too. Yeah. He's different from the job guarantee and MMT people because he's actually kind of more relies on the market. He's, he's, he's really seeing like people working in a, in a very market friendly way, in a private sector way. Like that's what he wants to encourage. And I think he does have kind of, he's critical of the government coming in and making it work for people to do. And I think if you're subsidizing low cost work in the private sector, that's a sort of an efficient way to do it because you're mobilizing market efficient forces to use this resource, to use up more of it. So he's actually very close 
in many ways to some of Alex's ideas. You could almost kind of call this worker monetary theory, except there's not money. It doesn't play a big role, but he is thinking in terms of like leveraging market efficiency to get this ultimate goal of more work being done accomplished. I think this quote that I've pulled speaks well to what we've been talking about right before Austin's question. So he says, yes, material living standards contribute to prosperity, but accomplishments like fulfilling traditional obligations, building strong personal relationships, succeeding at work, supporting a family, and raising children capable of doing all these things themselves are far more important to life satisfaction. What these things have in common is their productive nature, not uh, not as boost to GDP, but as ways that people invest effort on behalf of others. Our social norms recognize productive activities as essential to a functioning and prosperous society. And so we award respect, dignity, and gratitude to those who perform them. And so I'll comment on that before moving on. So here you can kind of see hopefully some of the things that I was summarizing, or this is at least where I got some of those ideas about his perspective. He talks about material living standards as just one thing, right? And that people need these other things on top of it. But traditional obligations, I mean, right there, we know tradition, whatever traditional obligations are is quite malleable and like doesn't have to include paid work. And some of these are also kind of vague, right? Like, wh what does that mean? Personal relationships could be built without paid work. I mean, I, you know, so, so some of these things, it's just like not clear why he thinks you need paid employment to do that. Succeeding at work. I mean, he's just saying that like he, that's sort of tautological then. Okay. Uh, supporting a family. Again, this is one of the examples I said, he sort of confounds throughout the article. So far as I can see things that just require money with things that require paid work, but he emphasizes a lot that you should earn enough at your job to support a family and people don't now, but then he doesn't like the idea of something like a basic income to do that. Raising children. So we, people, maybe people do have a pretty sticky desire to raise children that are capable of thriving in the world that they're in. But of course, the things that they need to do to thrive are, are going to be different depending on different uh, worlds too. So, you know, that's kind of what I mean. It's like, it's not really, he hasn't in this uh, example really justified why he feels like you need paid employment to do all of these things. And he's here saying that our social norms recognize productive activities as essential. So I think he's getting at something that I talk about here, which is that like people are tuned into what's being socially rewarded. But again, I think he's maybe missing that it wouldn't have to be the case that paid employment is what's socially rewarded if the economic structure worked differently. Uh, and in this, he also seems in this quote to be sort of um, assuming that, uh, because he's sort of alluding to paid employment here, assuming that paid employment is a productive activity. Uh, and, and, for, and in fact, he continues to say without work, the quintessential productive activity. Um, and yet later on, like I said, he proposes economic policies that make work less productive. So that's one of those con uh, contradictions that I have. Uh, some issues with. Um, and just to continue be before I move on, he says, uh, without work, the quintessential productive activity, self-esteem declines and a sense of helplessness increases, people become depressed. Where fewer men work, fewer marriages form, unemployment also doubles the risk of divorce, and male joblessness appears the primary culprit. These outcomes likely result from the damage to both economic prospects and individual well-being associated with being out of work, which strain existing marriages and make them less men less attractive as marriage partners. So, um, here, I would say that, you know, as I often talk about, one of these might be uh, endogenous to the other. So your economic prospects are screwed. And so your individual well-being is going to track that. And the fact that we can measure those as separable things right now doesn't mean that one isn't, the well-being isn't uh, coming from the economic uh, prospects. Maybe in the big picture, maybe it would take some time for our I, sort of feelings to adjust. But I do think those things are tied together. So um, 
I like that you asked us to go sort of to the text, Derek, but I think this is a nice example of some of those things that I, that I was trying to talk about before um, and sort of how he frames things. I think all of this is good and I pretty much agree with everything you're saying. Um, I think part of the problem here is that we're not really his audience. So for the most part, he doesn't feel the need to separate uh, the problems that are caused by people not having enough money from the problems that are caused by people not having jobs. So he acknowledges that people like us exist who think of these maybe separately and he does pay lip service to that in parts of it, but he doesn't integrate that into his whole thesis, so to speak. Right. Yeah. But what is interesting, just like Bethany points out that like almost everything mentioned in that first paragraph are, are not actually, um, don't have anything to do with employment by in the private or public sector. They don't have anything to do with working a job. And so, I mean, I, I think it's clear that people have very, very strong positive feelings about work as a concept. And so, I mean, I think an article like this is a good, is a very good example of why I, I tend not to phrase, um, you know, what I'm, the policies I like in terms of like, oh, it's against work or we don't like work or we think there's too much work because work is a very broad concept. I mean, he's, he's putting in raising a family, taking care of your children as work, which of course has nothing to do really with going to your, your day job. And you know, that, that's something that's totally separate. You're, as far as the economy is concerned, that's actually consumption. You're giving your kid food and goods presumably purchased mm -hmm. from the economy, right? And yet this is considered a form of contribution to society. That's debatable, I guess. But yeah, it's just interesting because there's, I don't know to what extent he's aware of the fact that he's mentioning all these social positives that are that aren't related to what he's talking about in the rest of the article. Yeah, I agree. He, in one place, tries to connect relationships to work by saying that people form a lot of their strong social relationships at work. Right. But of course, that's because they spend most of their time at work, right? So, so if you didn't spend most of your time at work, that doesn't necessarily mean you wouldn't form strong personal relationships. Right. And, you know, children form a lot of relationships at school, right. but they're not usually getting paid to show up at school and yeah. contribute productively, <laughs> right? So people will tend to, whenever large people groups of people are together, you'll tend to get relationships out of that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And I like your point about how some of these things are consumption because he talks in other parts about how consumption isn't what brings well-being, but he tends to emphasize things like iPhones, where of course feeding your children is also a form of consumption. And so, you know, maybe the examples are a little bit cherry picked to give people the intuition that he's going for. Yeah. And Richard says in the chat, in response to the idea of a wage subsidy, he says that it promotes employers paying as little as possible. So I think to some extent you could say, oh, if you pay employers to hire people, that means they can pay workers less. And that's true to some extent. It all depends on the incidence of the subsidy, how much is captured by the worker and how much is captured by the employer, because both are true. It makes it cheaper for the employers to hire workers at lower wages, but then the lower wages plus the subsidy, that might be higher than what the wage would have been before if the worker had been hired under under the old system. Just pointing that out. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like you could theoretically also have a complicated system where you paid people some money directly if they had a job, but only if they had a job. And it, I mean, I guess you could have like negative tax credit. Like I guess the, the earned income tax credit is a little bit like this, right? Where you, the government actually can pay people uh, sort of some money if they have a job, but the job doesn't pay that much money or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you could essentially make the same argument about basic income too, right? That if you're paying everyone all this money, that mm -hmm. means they can accept jobs at lower wages and what you're doing is making it cheaper for employers to hire people. And that's true to some extent, depending on the type of job it is, the basic income might cause some people to say no to certain types of jobs, but it also might make it cheaper for them to work certain kinds of jobs because they don't need as much money, right? Right. But I guess a feature that seems important to him that I was trying to highlight is that you don't get the money unless you have a job also, right? So he's definitely paying people to take jobs 
as well, you know, to try to incentivize that. Yes, that's very important for him. I have another quote, unless anybody from the audience wants to jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Moving to this question of what he has in his thinking that maybe I think is insightful. This captures a few things, this quote, but one of them is some something of this feedback loop that I mentioned in my introduction. So he says, alongside stable political institutions that protect basic freedoms, family and community provide the social structures necessary to a thriving society and a growing economy. Those institutions in turn rely on a foundation that productive of productive work through which people find purpose and satisfaction in providing for themselves and helping others. So, so far we're, we're in kind of the same zone we were before. And, and this is another example, um, speaking to Derek's question of how he just kind of like puts this idea out there and as a, as a bit of a given, it doesn't really back it up, at least not here. Uh, the durable growth that produces long-term prosperity is the emergent property of a virtuous cycle in which people who are able to support their families and communities improve their own productivity and raise a subsequent generation able to accomplish even more. Conversely, without access to work that can support them, families struggle to remain intact or to form in the first place, and communities cannot help but dissolve without stable families and communities, economic opportunities vanish. So this is what I, when I read this, I felt like, you know, this was his more substantive hypothesis, you might say, uh, which is this idea that um, the productivity of the whole country is sort of a long game and requires people to have, um, I would say enough prosperity, he would say paid employment to kind of keep um, themselves productive, you know, productive people, right? And I think that what he's likely, where he's likely getting this is in the data where poverty certainly leads to all sorts of negative effects that then lead people and their children to being less productive um, and then staying in poverty and so on. Um, but what I haven't seen here, as I pointed out before, is anything that particularly ties these uh, this virtuous cycle to paid employment um, versus money. But I do think that it's interesting to think about long-term effects um, like this, including generational effects. And it might be interesting later in the discussion or, or now to think about that with basic income, like what kinds of maybe unforeseen consequences could basic income have uh, on individuals and how they invest their time and, and invest in themselves and their families and what happens with their children and, and so on. So I do think that's kind of an interesting lens um, and it's nice to take that long view. Yeah, he talks about, he uses the phrase a lot, you know, how important it is for people to have work that can support them, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting because, you know, no one's, when you're on the job, when you are working, you're never supporting yourself, really. You're supporting the, the company or the product <laughs> or something that's being made. And, um, you know, it's a, you're giving up a lot of time that you could spend doing other things for yourself, but you're, you're now helping this endeavor. And meanwhile, you know, later, much much later in the week, you go to the grocery store and you pay money and you buy goods from from other firms, right? From other mm -hmm. other products elsewhere in the economy. So, like, I mean, I just think there's a whole there's a whole way in which um, you know money entering the equation here makes makes everything seem much more interdependent in a way that he's not looking at and not not considering. And he seems very much that he's made that the villain of his story. But I would like to hear him talk more about money. I would really like to hear how he thinks money is is relevant in the economy, like what it's for. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, he doesn't draw a clear distinction between uh, work that's sufficient to support the worker versus work that's productive or work that maintains or invests in the productive uh, capacity of the economy. Mm -hmm. Because the second thing is something that I think we all agree we need and we need the incentives to be such that we have all of those things. And like Bethany was bringing up, you know, there might be concern that with a basic income, uh, people would invest less in the things they need to invest in to keep the economy's productive capacity up to snuff, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think he also might be alluding to, uh, here in other places to work 
as something that helps the individual kind of like grow and invest in their own productive capacity as well. So there's sort of all these different components that he doesn't always tease apart. Um, and, and I do think that some jobs in particular can do that um, to, you know, they can help you like gain skills that are maybe useful in other ways or useful for the economy both. Uh, but I also think it's interesting to think about how both money and time are helpful for many of the things that he talks about in this quote. So supporting my family, you know, of course it's good to have, I need money to do that, but also presumably if I have no free time, I can't spend time enriching the lives of my children either. Um, and so, and, and work and it takes away from your paid employment, takes away from your time to do these things. And that's something I feel is missing. And I wonder if he has a little bit of a, I don't want to say he has a bias towards uh, white color work because he definitely doesn't. He's definitely focused on other work, but I guess he has a vision of work where the sort of number of hours are such that he feels like they're in good balance with these other things. But um, nevertheless, maybe he isn't thinking about how much better it could be if people worked even less than eight hours a day or something like that uh, and had even more time to spend with their kids or to invest in skills or other productive things. Whether he thinks they would actually voluntarily do that is maybe a debate that he would get into as well. But, but I do think that it's interesting to think about how the things that he wants to happen might happen potentially even more with money that isn't tied to spending your time in a particular way. And I feel like that's something that, that maybe he hasn't explored here very much. His look at basic income is really short. <laughs> and not very in-depth in this particular article, at least. So it just seems like he kind of throws that away. But, uh, you know, he doesn't really explain why money untied to an activity is, is necessarily a bad thing. It makes me wonder if maybe a, a framing for an argument like this that you can think about it, about what, say, what basic income or what more consumption allows is, is the possibility of allowing people to do more work or more flexibility in determining <laughs> the kind of work that they choose to do. And I think all of the all of the positive associations he has here with, with work and productive contribution are the same if you imagine someone going out and deciding to, you know, get some lumber at Home Depot and then build a porch on the side mm -hmm. of their house or something or build a treehouse for their kids. Like all of, you know, volunteer at the fire department or something. Like there's there's all of these ways that people can contribute that don't, you know, don't involve being a wage labor, don't involve having a boss and clocking in. And so I just wonder why I, that's, that's what, I wonder how effective that kind of framing would be against an argument like phrases like this. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my sense is that on the one hand, he looks at the market in such a way and the value of the market in such a way that he might say, well, like the market is really good at giving people signals about where their effort is needed. And that maybe is one of the benefits he would see in paid employment. Like, oh, like someone's going to pay me to do this. There's sort of like a signal there that's useful. And if I have to kind of just figure it out on my own, it could be more difficult. And in fact, altruism is often very ineffective. That's something that I study. So like, it is kind of difficult sometimes or people just don't care a lot of times to like figure out what my, where my efforts are gonna be useful. Um, however, where this runs into an issue is as I said before, he then turns around and proposes things that actually weaken that signal, actually sort of dilute the signal by which you, people are paying you because they want you to do something that's actually productive for the economy. So I feel like you can't really have it both ways. But I'm guessing that that instinct of his is coming in part from the ideal of, a, of an efficient labor market, sending you some kind of really efficient signal about where your labor is going to be useful. Um, and that that's sort of this really great like win-win kind of thing if people also want to be productive. Um, yeah, I think I think the problem is that as he rightly identified in another part of the article, there's no law of economics that lines up that real genuine signal with the money that we want people to have. He doesn't put it in those terms, but he almost does, because of course he wants people to support a family and all those kinds of things. And there's just nothing that lines those two things up. And so his solution, because he really loves work, is to kind of like force and do, like do make work and kind of like force the market to to, to fill in that gap. And of course, our Alex's solution and our solution often in this group is to is to fill in that gap with with actual cash in a way, right? 
to be fair, I don't think Oren would say that you'd, you're having an inefficient market. Um, and he probably wouldn't even call it make work. He might say that, you know, we want the market to operate efficiently uh, in the context of certain conditions. And how we set up those conditions determines what an efficient market is going to do. And one of the things he wants a so-called efficient market to do is to provide people uh, with an opportunity to contribute through meaningful paid work. You and I would probably say, well, that's an example of a market inefficiency. But if that's your goal, you know, everyone agrees, or I think we all here agree that we want to orient markets toward um, desirable social outcomes. So this is what I was getting at at the beginning. What are our desirable social outcomes? What, you know, does it make sense for us to desire in terms of outcomes? And if his desires are different then what he views as an efficient market is going to be different too. Yeah, but I guess I think my still, my critique still stands, which is that if he's arguing that work for people is, is important because it's a good signal that you're having a genuine contribution, I do still think that some of his proposals undermine that signal. Yeah. And so you're right that if you take it as a given that people should have work, then then he's arranging the market to do that. But I, we were trying to investigate kind of like why you would think that's a good thing. And that's where I, where I think he runs into some contradictions. Yeah. So there's the question about um, does some of the things he's proposing, um, you know, kind of weaken the signal of, of what's important work. Uh, and Austin asked the question in the chat, too. Would Oren argue that a wage subsidy amplifies the signal telling you what's valuable rather than diluting it? And I think he wouldn't necessarily argue that it amplifies the signal of what's valuable, but he'd probably say that it minimally interferes with it because you're subsidizing wages across the whole economy. So you still have an even playing field among employers. Well, I guess that weakens the signal only in the sense that you're paying people to stay employed rather than to be not employed at all. Um, I don't know if that weakens the signal or not. I have to think it through. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that it is a little bit of a dampening of efficient incentives. Um, or, or efficient signals. Um, I think in absolute terms, the signals are still there in terms of businesses aren't going to hire people who it isn't useful for them to hire. But if you're subsidizing wages across the whole economy, it might, mm -hmm. um, it might signal that more work is, it, it, it might signal that there's a uh, more of a priority of, of labor over leisure. It might, it might signal right. that work in general is, is more productive than it actually is if we had, if we didn't subsidize wages. Yeah. So I could imagine that it undermines potentially, say, investment in automation slightly because you're making labor artificially cheap. It might undermine uh, going to cheaper foreign labor, which is something he wants. But again, like that's sort of inefficient. So so it does kind of push things in, in certain directions that, yes. that are wasting people's time unnecessarily, I would say, in the end. Yes. And he would say, of course, that it's not wasting people's time if they if they have the job. Uh, so we kind of like go in that circle again. Again. Yeah. Well, which we've gone through. <laughs> which we've, gone through. we've gone through it enough times. We've gone through it yeah. a few times, too. Um, so, yeah. uh, Ubu7 in the YouTube live stream uh, is asking, do we have data on people with passive income from inheritance and their employment rates? Mm, so that's an interesting question. There's also questions about uh, people with passive income in general. Are they more depressed? That You know, that kind of thing. That can maybe to some extent help us tease apart how much of this stuff is baked into our psychology, how much of it is is culture and how much of it is, you know, the fact that individuals happen to be in a situation where they depend on jobs or in, in a context where they depend on jobs for their income. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't know the data on that. I wish I did. It's a great question. Um, one thing that I would say is anecdotally, it's interesting. And I think this has been pointed out here before that very wealthy people sometimes still work in our uh, culture, whereas in the past at other, you know, in other cultures and, and in other times in Western culture, that wasn't always the case as much. That wasn't always the norm to the same degree, or like women were not always expected to work to the same degree, things like that. So um, the norms can change. And, and I guess one thing I would say is that 
Uh, one limitation of looking at people who have passive income in our current uh, culture and economy is that they're still within the context of an economy where most people have to work to earn a living. And so they might be highly influenced by that. Uh, and they might have internalized a value of work that would change if the entire structure of the economy changed and most people were, were living off of basic income or something like that. That said, we also talked about in the cultural incentives one that like there are other reasons to work besides money uh, in terms of social incentives. So maybe you're showing off a skill uh, or making extra money, which is always good. Or, you know, there are other things that might, and those might persist as motivations uh, with the basic income as well. So, so and you might see those with people with passive income too. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We can't get a clean read on uh, what people's psychology would be in a society where everyone had passive income just by looking at people who have mm -hmm. passive, passive income in the context of today's culture. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I have a quote that we can go to that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, Bethany. Let's do it. Only through production does the ability to consume exist. Production without consumption creates options. Consumption without production creates dependence and debt. Most of the activities <laughs> and achievements that give life purpose and meaning are, whether in ec the economic sphere or not, fundamentally acts of production. Oof, oof. Did you see? Yeah. Hmm. He's a lawyer, right? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I'm saying that because I feel like lawyers are supposed to be careful with their language. And well, I don't. He's not a practicing lawyer. He's a. Yeah, yeah no, I, I should stop uh, critiquing him because I do think he has a lot of good insights. But but I do have a few issues with this. So one thing here is that the the sentences the sentence about production and consumption seems to apply on a social level, but not necessarily on an individual level, depending on how the economy is set up, which I'm sure is something you were thinking about, Alex. Right. So certainly. I guess as an individual, if I produce without consuming, that might create options. It might not. It depends on whether I'm paid for it. Because we we live in an economy, as Derek has pointed out, where everything is intermediated by money at this point. So I could produce all sorts of things that other people take from me for no money and have no options. If let's say I'm a slave or something like that, we don't slave right now, but you know, or I'm paid you know very much little or nothing for what I'm doing. I'm like forced to do it. And then of course consumption without production. If you have a basic income. Uh, and that's steady and reliable from your government and the whole society as an aggregate is producing enough isn't necessarily going to create dependence and debt. So I think it depends on what level you're looking at and how things are are structured. And then the second sentence, I, I think of what uh, Derek pointed out before, which is that, for example, feeding your children and providing good life for them includes a fair degree of consumption, but people find that very meaningful. And that might be one of the reasons that they work is to do that consumption, but it's still an act of consumption. You know, lots of people find going to a concert really meaningful. Um, lots of people find all sorts of acts of consumption meaningful. Um, I think that they like to be of value and they like to contribute, but sometimes that simultaneously involves kind of like consumption and giving, like we're talking about with getting something for your children um, or, you know, getting a gift for your mom or being able to care for your mom that would require some money as well as some effort or whatever. So yeah, I just, I just don't know um, that anything in this article convinced me of, of this sentence. I think as you, Alex pointed out before, it's supposed to be something we intuitively agree with. Uh, and if you don't intuitively agree with it, uh, it starts to break down a little bit. Yeah, I think when he says production without consumption creates options, maybe what he's alluding to is not just in aggregate in the economy as a whole, but if you're working and you're earning money, you have the option to spend that money. So you're mm -hmm. you're producing more and you're saving up money and then that gives you flexibility. Whereas consumption without production is maybe you're spending down your savings, you're going into debt yeah. or, <laughs> or something along those lines uh, yeah. on the individual level. That's how I read it. 
Well, I was just going to say we, we can also look at it in in real resource terms too, without money. And and in that sense, I mean, his first sentence makes sense, right? It doesn't make sense to think of consuming something that isn't that was never produced. Like you have to produce goods <laughs> in order to consume them, so that's true. Um, but then, um, uh, you know, production is, is not that doesn't mean that's not the same thing as saying work, right? Work is one resource that goes into into the productive process. And just like Bethany said, it's very important to differentiate between um, how how productive the economy is versus how productive each and every individual ver, uh, person is. But when, when he goes to say consumption, that production creates dependence and debt. I mean, I, I think if you're looking at the economy and you're just modeling dependence and debt as problems in and of themselves, like that's, that's, that's weird because the economy is all about interdependence and it is, it is all about debt to a certain extent. I mean, if, if you accept that money is debt and that we're all operating on promises for future production, then then we can't really say that these are that these are problems. So I, I think I think he's just modeling it wrong, and he's a little bit afraid of the idea of interdependence and the fact that we all benefit from having been born into a an economy that's developed over a long amount of a period of time and has so many efficiency advantages and different you know intellectual advances that have occurred over the years. We all benefit from that. We all benefit from um, from being interdependent not only with like our friends and coworkers, but with, with everything in the entire economy. So I think he's just kind of uh, missing the forest for the trees there. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, uh, Derek. And I do think it's interesting now that you say that, that he really emphasizes dependence as like dependence on government money or government aid, uh, but not necessarily dependence on companies, right? And, and so for example, Carl Redequist, I think points out rightly that like, it's not like we have an non-dependent option. Um, not that we would even want one, as you point out, there are a lot of benefits, but it's not like we have or ever really have had, to be honest, if you study human societies, we've never really had an independent option. We've always been a cultural species that was very interdependent. Um, it could have been that you, you know, the closest to this would be there are societies where once you've learned the skills, which you never could have come up with on your own, but once you've learned them uh, from your culture, maybe you could go off and like survive on some land by yourself. Uh, but we don't even have that kind of dependent, uh, in independence available to us now because most of us aren't just given like uh, either the skills, nor the nor the supplies, or the land, or anything else that we would need to like have a living without being dependent on something. So it's really about dependence on uh, companies and the market versus dependence on the government. And it's you know interesting that he cares so much about which kind of dependence is there, and sort of only calls one dependence and not the other. I think is is how I would summarize part of what you were pointing out, Derek, uh, and thinks of it as such a problem to be dependent on the government and not at all a problem to be dependent on the companies. And then to add another layer, of course, you're dependent on the government too, because the companies, as he points out, don't naturally create enough work for you. So then the government has to do that, <laughs> but shouldn't supply it directly. So it's a whole kind of like layering thing. I, I <laughs> want to hear what Alex says, but let's footnote that because I wanted to get into his his overall view of how we live in a consumer economy and not a worker oriented economy. And that's highly questionable, I think. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, Alex, sorry, what do you want to say? Yeah, I like your point about the the kinds of dependence um, because, you know, in here, when we talk about uh, people being dependent on the market or on private employers, we want to force people to be dependent on private employers, but only to the extent that we want them to do something for the market, for the private employers, right? Um, and then to the extent that we don't need them to do that, they can be dependent on the government. They can be dependent on the, on the basic income. Um, and this first sentence here um, in, this, in this excerpt, only through production does the ability to consume exist. I mean, like Derek was saying, that's true. And it really, um, you know, it kind of calls attention to the fact that production exists 
to serve consumption. Consumption is the benefit that we receive, and production um, is kind of a secondary thing that, that we do to make that happen. Uh, so in this paragraph, even while he's trying to emphasize the primacy of production and productive activity, he's admitting that um, we do it so people can consume. We do it mm -hmm. so other people can reap the benefit of that production, of that product. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was just thinking also that he would maybe say, uh, as a counterpoint to my point, that like, well, if you have something of value to sell, and then like you can do that, you're, you're even if you're dependent on companies, you're still kind of self-reliant in a way that if you're not selling anything to the government, they just value you because you're a person and they give you money, then that's not quite the same thing. Uh, and I guess to, to that critique I've, I've drummed up in my head, I would also point out what Derek said, which is like, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, right? Because like, of course, whether you have something of value to sell, as he as he also points out in the article, it like depends on all sorts of other conditions that are being said in part by the government, but also like depends on the whole history of the economy and, and where things stand and, and, and all of this. So, so it just seems like, um, again, an intuition that feels true, to many people, but is actually kind of endogenous to the way that things are set up and the fact that we actually have to sell our labor to survive. And so we have this sense of like, oh, it's great to be like, have something of value to sell and then like be self-reliant. And like, if I don't have anything of value that no, that people are willing to pay me for, then I'm not contributing in the right, in the right way or something like that. Yeah. yeah. One other side point to that is like, th this kind of rhetoric is also used to just sell um, lower different tax policies, right? Because right now we tend to, to um, fund or feel that we need to fund payments to people uh, via taxes. And so there are also like people with a particular interest in selling this narrative of quote unquote self-reliance as a way just to pay less money. Uh, so there's that kind of like cynical angle of how these ideologies get internalized as well, which is probably worth bringing up. One of the things I found the most fascinating about this article was the story it tells about the problem with the economy and the problem with society. And I think many articles like this all have that. They have to tell a story about, okay, we've been going in a certain direction and it's it's not it's not working out. We got to change paths. And his the direction he doesn't like is that we have a consumer-driven economy, and economists are you know relentlessly pursuing higher GDP, which he takes to be kind of commensurate with you know more to consume, or pushing in a more consumptive-oriented direction. But it's really you know um, it's really interesting, right? Like I think I think it's worth really trying to from a neutral perspective whether whether we think it's good or bad idea to really try to understand. Okay, well. What direction are we moving in? What do what is the official stated line about the economy? How is the economy officially designed? And if you go to the Federal Reserve website, I mean, it's almost like they've read Oren's article because um, they they talk uh, in explicit detail about how they are, um, you know, trying ever trying every day trying harder to make employment more widely distributed and more inclusive as a benefit to society. And that that rhetoric is is very deep in in the official policy rhetoric that that's that, you know, very strongly determines how the economy is run, and that's not a recent you know development. That's that's sort of been there for quite a quite a while, um, and they've they've been going in this direction for, for for a long time, and so, you know, it is interesting. I I do hear a characterization that we live in a consumer driven economy, but whatever in whatever sense he means that, right? It can't be in a technical sense. It can't be in a in a policy sense because that's that's not actually what we're doing. We we live very explicitly in a, in a full employment private sector economy. Um, so like I, I think that that's important because for his argument to make sense, it has to be the case that like we are we've gone too far down the consumer oriented path and we have to avert paths now before it's too late. And it looks a little different once you understand. Well, actually, we a lot of smart people are trying as hard as possible 
to achieve the outcome that that he's suggesting. And I mean that that might suggest that well, maybe there's something off with the with the objective once you once you notice that. Yeah, I, I think to some extent, um, you know, in terms of classical liberalism um, and uh, classical economics, like with uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo and that kind of stuff, they do talk about the workers, but they also do um, have this kind of consumer oriented perspective, especially when it comes to trade, um, that if you have, you know, free trade, then, you know, there's, um, you know, that that opens up, you know, people to work on their comparative advantage and everyone wins and that kind of thing. Uh, so that's kind of like the uh, uh, classical liberal and, and neoliberal perspective. And that is very common in uh, especially academic uh, economics. In terms of macroeconomic policy, um, well, macroeconomics kind of started with John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s, and he was trying to solve the problem of involuntary unemployment. So that was the birth of macroeconomics. So it was baked in right from the beginning um, that we were trying to um, ensure that people had good enough jobs, that kind of thing. So most of the arguing in that policy space is about, well, what, what's the best way to ensure that um, you know, people are working productively and you know, the economy is humming along with you know, the labor market being what contributes the product the economy's product, but also what provides consumers with their income, that kind of thing. So you're right, it's kind of in, uh, all kind of entangled and, and um, it can be useful to disentangle that. So Diane Pagin is on the YouTube live chat. Oh, great. Um, and she's saying, hey, all I doubt the knowledge base of Cass and why anyone would think he has a legitimate base on which to craft responsible anti-poverty policy. <laughs> Does he have any firsthand experience of poverty? So actually, it's a funny story. I was down in New York back in 2019, and I happened to be reading Orrin Cass's book at the time, The Once and Future Worker, um, when I saw Diane Pagin. And she's like, oh, what are you reading? Uh, so she went and read the book and got really angry and wrote a whole article uh, refuting uh, Orrin Cass and the Once and Future Worker. Um, so I encourage you guys to, to go check that out as well. But the idea that, you know, he doesn't have any personal experience. Uh, so I think it's useful to kind of draw on people's personal experience because sometimes you might get insights that you wouldn't otherwise get. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to people who don't have that experience uh, or who, who are still thinking about um, the various issues and various factors. I would prefer to critique Orrin's arguments on what he's saying rather than uh, what's behind uh, why he's saying what he's saying or like or like something to do with with him and his life experience or something like that yeah, um, yeah. Um, that said there are a few quotes in there diane if you're listening where i specifically wrote a note to myself that you would have a field day with this with this point because there were things that were kind of <laughs> suggesting that like the the social safety net is just so amazing in the u.s that somehow like people are disincentivized from working and like it was it was pretty ridiculous so, so I, I understand where yeah you're coming well from. i mean the social safety net <laughs> does have these problems like with welfare cliffs and stuff like that um so so I think I think Oren and Diane would agree that it's not um, working ideally in terms of, of what it's objective. That's that's fair. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, Richard points out that um, there are policies that promote zombie companies uh, and reduce the incentive to automate. And I think that's absolutely right. That's kind of what I'm talking about with the proposals that uh, Oren seems to suggest is that maybe it wouldn't be like. I don't know how extreme he wants to go, but it does seem like he wants to promote um, incentives towards work uh, away from what might be more efficient, like like automation. Yeah, if there's a company that can stay in business because you know maybe their product is really labor intensive and wouldn't otherwise exist, but labor is cheaper because of the wage subsidy, uh, then maybe you could call that a zombie company. Yeah, exactly. In the chat, also, like I, Austin mentioned, that uh, if we're 
uh, if we're consuming more than we produce, there would be high inflation and little waste, but we have low inflation and lots of waste. And I, and I just think like there was something there relating to Oren's earlier point about consumption and production, like consuming coming from producing. And I, I just think it's, it's great if we can develop a sense where these things are harmoniously arranged and like, it's not possible for us to consume more than we produce really, then, then you start to get this inflation problem. And so um, like recognizing that I think maybe can help bring bring those perspectives together and and I like to frame consum consumer spending as like as the way that we learn what work is most productive that's how we determine what what work is most productive is figuring out what what do people actually want mm -hmm. um, and otherwise we'll just we'll just be creating creating stuff you know endlessly yeah at, at the aggregate level it's not possible for the economy to consume more than it produces unless it's drawing down inventories of of stuff we produced in the past that we didn't consume uh so i think oren is more talking about the individual level when he says that yeah but i i think that's a great perspective and a great point because um presumably what we're if it's possible even to give people money um, which he doesn't really deny uh, and allow them to consume without working then clearly we don't really need everybody's labor at least for the current level of production and so how do we know that we need it for optimal production and so again Orrin isn't interested in that he thinks of work as its own like benefit in and of itself but um yeah at the, it, it does point to this idea that maybe we don't Need everybody's labor, and and there are real costs. Like he even points out some of them. Like like he wants the air quality potentially to be worse as an incentive to get people working in in lower uh, quality, you know, in, in lower paid, uh, sorry, lower skill kinds of jobs in the United States. Or he's he's willing to pay that cost at least. Sorry, I shouldn't say he wants it to be. No, no, of course not. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, but he's he thinks that those kinds of trade offs are necessary, and those kind of trade offs are worth making uh, just to, to have people be working instead of, for example, getting a basic income. So. So I want to get to one final quote from the article before we get to final thoughts from Bethany and Derek. Claims that overall growth is robust and wages not so bad don't remedy ongoing social collapse. Reverse workforce abandonment or lessen government dependence. They only underscore the disconnect between conventional economic measures and the quality of life for which those me measures are supposed <laughs> to provide proxies. So social collapse is obviously bad, uh, but what's the problem with workforce abandonment and government dependence? Uh, why do we think of these things as bad things? So I think we kind of got into this a little bit, but really how do we get around um, this psychology of, of thinking of these as bad? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that it's a little bit chicken and egg because as I point out, sometimes you need the conditions to change for the psychology to change, but then maybe it's hard to get the conditions to change if you can't convince people that these things aren't good in and of themselves, things like paid employment. So I think that is, that is a little bit tricky. Yes. I don't know, Derek, did you want to weigh in? I mean, mostly I agree with that. It, it's hard to figure that out. And I, I would just say, I think um, we should approach it from both fronts. So there's the economic efficiency argument, which interestingly, he seems to be on board with, actually. He actually sort of seems to say, concede that like, well, actually be simpler, more efficient to just do everything for the benefit of consumers, but we want to we're going to pay some cost in that to to maximize work worker benefit, and so I guess uh, or working benefit. So I guess um, what it makes me wonder more about is the process by which people come to arrive at their 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 priority of goals, their their hierarchy of values. How do how do people uh, think about that? Right. I mean, um, it, did he just is he just taking this for given, or did he go through a careful process and think like, well, okay, is there to be should we put the worker first, the consumer first? How should we do it? And um, I mean, that's that's sort of what it makes me think about because I don't the way he phrases it here. I you know, if you're accepting it as a as a, a good in and of itself, um, you can't really argue with that. But what you could maybe do is is ask more about how people are 
figuring out what's what the priority is for, what people really want. Um, that's something that makes this makes me think about. I think the right approach to people's desire to contribute and potentially their current desire to have a paid job is to get the economics the way we want them to be, like perhaps give people a basic income and then see how people adjust. And then if we need to invest in people having purpose, let's be conscious about that and separate that from meeting their need for money, because that way we can optimize the benefits to well-being in a way that we won't if we're tying it to them getting their money. And we can also minimize the costs to society, environmental, economic efficiency, and so on. So that's my takeaway for how I think we should approach the points that he's making. Okay. Thanks, Bethany. So this was a good discussion, you guys. I think part of what Oren Cass does illustrate nicely is that if you are trying to ensure that the majority of people have access to a decent job, and Derek pointed this out before, economic policy starts to become very complicated. Oren offers some compelling ideas for how to simplify pro-work and pro-worker policies, but if the working hypothesis is wrong, then it's a lot of wasted effort. Next Tuesday, we have returning guest Michael Lewis coming on, along with Steve Nunez of the Jane Family Institute, to talk about the welfare system and their recent paper co-authored with Sidya Balakrishnan entitled Reweaving the Safety Net. So that should be a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thanks Bethany.